Welcome to The Bone Beat, conversations on health policy issues affecting musculoskeletal care and supporting advocacy efforts to advance access and quality. Brought to you by the American Association of Orthopedic Surgeons. Here's your host, Kristen Coltis. Thanks for tuning into the show. If you're a longtime listener, you know that we launched the show exactly one year ago in coordination with what became a virtual 2020 annual meeting. We've covered a lot of topics since then, ranging from reducing disparities in healthcare, the election, shift of procedures to the outpatient setting, even the regulatory landscape of biologics. But in this episode, we're stepping back from focusing on individual issues to talk about the bigger picture. And that is what we're advocating for in 2021. Our guest is Dr. Douglas Lundy from Resurgence Orthopedics in Atlanta, Georgia. He is the new chair of the AAOS Advocacy Council. This means he'll be leading the group of orthopedic surgeons who plan, organize, direct, and evaluate the association's legislative, regulatory, and health policy programs and initiatives. So welcome, Dr. Lundy. Glad to have you back on the show. Hey, Kristen. Thank you very much. Some listeners may remember hearing from you in the election focus interview with Dr. Newt Bueller and the episode we did in December on bundled payment programs. But for those who aren't familiar, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and how you got involved in healthcare policy? Yeah, sure. So I'm an orthopedic trauma surgeon here at Resurgence in Metro Atlanta. So all I do is complex fracture surgery. I was a leadership fellow of the academy back in 2005 and 2006. And during that course of that curriculum, we went to the National Orthopedic Leadership Conference on Capitol Hill. Um, Stu Weinstein was president of the academy, and a lot of my class kind of uh, aspired to be become president of the academy. But I really uh, felt a strong affiliation with David Halsey, who was currently the chair in the Council on Advocacy, and I felt a real strong calling to that. It was amazing that we could take our individual issues that we see in taking care of patients up to the legislators and actually improve patient care for the entire country. We find that a lot of our members really get that first spark of uh, advocacy and what it means to shape healthcare in that way through coming to the Hill and engaging with our Office of Government Relations. And actually, we're still educating our members on the fact that we have a, an office in Washington and a team of dedicated, um, you know, advocates for the members. So let's actually move right on into the issues, Dr. Lundy, um, uh, or problems that we're trying to solve. Um, you know, the ultimate goal of this being that we are advancing musculoskeletal care. And we've explained in other episodes that they're incorporated into a unified advocacy agenda that the AOS follows each year. So if listeners are interested in that process, how it works, how it's made, uh, I encourage them to check out episode number one. That's with um, uh, the former AOS president, Dr. Christy Weber, or the episode number three with former advocacy council chair, Dr. Wilford Gibson. But in this episode, we're going to focus less on the vehicle for change, um, be it a bill in Congress or a regulatory rule from the agency, and more about the impact that these issues have on the daily lives of our surgeon members. So why don't you start by just briefly touching upon how these items are categorized for the association? So as you can imagine, there's only limited bandwidth and support that any organization can give. And if you think of all the things that can impact healthcare, 
it's absolutely overwhelming how much there is. Even as the new council chair, I am astonished at all the amazing things that the Office of Government Relations is doing on our behalf in order to help us take better care of our patients. But having said that, when you consider all the variety of issues that are both legislative and regulatory that affect us in Washington, the Council on Advocacy breaks this down into three different areas. The, the highest priority are the things that we call active pursuit and that the Office of Government Relations lobbyists and staff members are always looking for opportunities every time possible to pursue these issues and try to get these um, optimized for orthopedic surgeons and the patients we take care of. The second tier below that is called opportunistic action. And these are issues that if the uh, situation arises where we're able to, to really monopolize on this, and if the, the temperature changes in DC where all of a sudden we have the opportunity to take care of that, we will. The third tier would be actively tracking. And although these issues are very important, we don't unfortunately have the bandwidth to advocate for everything so that we keep a close eye on these and can move these up in the agenda should the opportunity arise. And that list is really long. Uh, I should know the number off the top of my head and I do not, but I think you make a really good point and a strong uh, distinction there about saying that there are three separate tiers, um, none any less important than the other, but it's really important that uh, we focus on those those policy areas that we can effectively change. So, in fact, for the purposes of this episode, I'm hoping we can focus on those tier one issues. Uh, we could spend forever getting through that whole list. Uh, so let's dive right in, Dr. Lundy. The first, the first issue or problem that we have on that unified advocacy agenda that's a tier one issue is uh, reforming prior authorization and coverage reviews. That's a pretty general goal, one that most of our orthopedic surgeons would hear and say they support. So can you expand on how we want that process to be reformed and why it matters to the daily lives of our members? So orthopedic surgeons, regardless of your practice setting, whether you're an academic uh, private practice or whether you work for a uh, healthcare organization, are burdened extensively with many forms of paperwork, especially prior authorization. We deal with this all the time. This isn't new. And the legislators on Capitol Hill have heard us bring this up before, yet little has been done for it. We continue to have increasing burden for that. So there is a bill called uh, the Improving Seniors Timely Access to Care Act, which specifically looks at Medicare Advantage and tries to hold insurance companies to task that whatever prior authorization we have to do is absolutely critical and decreases the significant burden of, of paperwork that has to go on and enables us to take better and more efficient care of patients. Another thing I want to add is just that um, that transparency that we're trying to add in, uh, in the prior authorization areas about health insurance, both both public and private. Um, and I know some of the activity in this area is also happening at the state level. Um, so that's important to note, you know, that we have a state advocacy director who is monitoring issues at the state level, hoping to preempt what's coming at the federal level. Um, but let's move on into the second issue, and that is maintain surgeon patient primacy in setting of care. Uh, again, that issue is pretty general. It could probably apply to a lot of uh, areas or problems that our surgeons experience daily. Um, and the way that it's written, uh, you know, maintain 
surgeon patient primacy and setting a care reads like there's an actual threat to that relationship. So is that true? Uh, and how do you interpret that area of our policy focus? That's right. And our colleagues across the country continually feel under threat. That's, that's a very common theme that we often hear is that we're being taken out of the decision role. We are without question the musculoskeletal experts in taking care of the best interests of our patient. Many times we're removed from that. One of the, but like many things in DC and that we deal with on an advocacy issue, they're very complicated. A lot of times we like to bake it down to a black and white issue and there are many shades of gray. So for instance, I mean, it's very easy to look at the inpatient only list. So if you recall, uh, not too long ago, Medicare had a list of procedures that could only be done on an inpatient basis. There were a lot of orthopedic surgeons that were against that and said that we should have the ability to choose that. Yet there are very effective arguments for why as orthopedic surgeons, we wanted to maintain the list. Uh, past president of the Academy, uh, Dr. Bosco wrote a very nice article on this. So the inpatient only list really shows that we should be the ones that make the decision whether the patient has the procedure done as an inpatient, if they're healthy enough to go home, or they have to stay overnight. And it should be based off of our determinations, not some random bureaucrat or administrative person who never went to medical school, doesn't know the patient, doesn't know how to do this. So when we talk about surgeon primacy, that's what we're talking about. And we, we actually did a whole episode on that topic. It's uh, You said it was recent. It was. It was just January 1st that 266 all musculoskeletal procedures came off that list. So, um, you know, it, it's funny. And Dr. Lundy, we, you and I talked about this too, that um, that the actual shaping of healthcare happens at the association in Washington with our advocacy team and, and the council that you lead. But then once that policy uh, becomes practice and that bill becomes law, then it becomes the education piece that our academy offers. And I think that distinction is important. I think, I think it's one that we don't make often enough, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. And that's a, that's a thing that a lot of folks don't see. The next time you're at the annual meeting and you see the background that's red, that means it's the academy and everybody calls everything the academy. But when we go into the healthcare policy issues, that has to be an association issue, which is the same organization, but a different portion of this. And that legally allows us to deal with healthcare policy and things like that. So the important thing is, is whether we say academy or association, recognize that the organization is doing a tremendous amount on our behalf to help us take better care of patients, whether it's advocating in front of Congress and getting the correct laws passed and then affecting those laws through the regulatory processes within Medicare or back over onto the educational side to where the academy is leading efforts to teach us better how to do these things. And to what you brought up earlier on the inpatient only list, that really kind of points it out because since January and now everything is off the inpatient only list, we might think, oh, that's great. Look at this. Now I have full control until we don't, right? Right. A private payer says, wait a minute, that case is not on the inpatient only list anymore. Therefore, I'm not going to allow an overnight stay for that patient. And then we might say, there's no way I could do Mrs. Jones procedure as an outpatient. She's not healthy enough. It's too complicated. She needs to stay overnight. So this is what I was talking about, the gray areas in this, that we can't just mandate it one way or the other. But we actually, the bottom line is we have to be left as the advocates for the patient to make the decision. That's actually a really good uh, transition into talking about a, a third 
policy area on our tier one issues, uh, and that is telemedicine policies that promote equal reimbursement with in-person visits. Our members know the drastic ways in which telemedicine was reshaped and changed in 2020. And actually, uh, before it was with the association and something we were advocating for, uh, you, this was something not even on our radar. So. Um, how, how is telemedicine a part of the work we do at the association and why is it a tier one issue? That's a great point. I remember in my previous work with the council, telemedicine was very low in the tiers on the unified advocacy agenda because what in the world is telemedicine? How would it ever affect with what we do? We get x-rays on things. We examine patients. How can you possibly do that over the web? Well, COVID sure showed us, didn't it? Yep. I think probably everybody on this call, or if not almost everybody, spent some time in front of a TV screen like this talking to a patient. And then we also had to realize what we had behind us when our patients were talking to us and all the interesting things that we learned about telemedicine. Well, one of the big issues is, is that many ways the private payers and Medicare would like to revert back to the previous ways. And we've learned now that there is tremendous benefit for telemedicine in taking care of patients. The payers would certainly love for us to just do this for free, just to comp it on. But many times we can decrease costs and increase value through telemedicine, and we should be allowed to use this as an integral part of what we do to take care of patients. You mentioned patients, Dr. Lundy, and I think that this, uh, this area of our focus is so patient uh, centered because it's really the patients that are benefiting from the expansion of these services. Before we move on to the next area, could you provide any color there on how maybe you've used it in your practice uh, in the last year that was this, this total expansion of a new area of medicine? So we've all had times where patients would send in pictures, right, of their wound, and you're like, oh, I don't want to make decisions based off a decision like that. But as a trauma surgeon, I would have patients that would you know, roll their pants up, say, hey, look at my leg. What do you think? They'd walk across the floor and we would see this. And of course, in the light of COVID, it was the best thing to do. I take care of a fair number of elderly patients who certainly didn't need to be out in the community coming to the doctor's office and being exposed to other people. We needed to keep them at home and do that. I think all of us have learned along the way saying, I can't necessarily touch and examine somebody, but I can sure get them to do different things. And a lot of ways, I think probably one of the best ways about this was it helped build a rapport with patients, sometimes sometimes difficult patients. Uh, it turned out to be a whole lot better. Our relationship was improved because we were all kind of laughing around the bur barriers that were in place but we found a way to get through it. I think everybody learned different ways for their specific practice, whether it's hand or total joint or spine or foot and ankle in terms of how to do it. The point is, is that we need to be able to use this in the future for taking care of patients in the appropriate setting. We've learned a lot from it. We don't need to revert back to previous ways, but unfortunately for the payers for that, we do need to get paid for this. We shouldn't be doing these things for free. Absolutely. And even just listening to you uh, give that example there, I was thinking about the ways that the area of telemedicine itself could be expanded into other areas that is that are medical liability. Um, you know, uh, coverage is just one piece of that. So I think it's an important point to make for our listeners, too, that these tier one issues have so many facets and complexities that make uh, advancing musculoskeletal care and ensuring the best possible 
ideal scenario for our members and patients is the case. Um, so let's move on to the next one, and that is uh, supporting the repe repealing the ban on physician-owned hospitals. This issue is definitely more niche, and it applies to a smaller portion of our membership. So why is this an issue that AOS has determined is a priority, and, and what do we mean by repealing this ban? So if you recall, back when the Affordable Care Act was passed, it put a ban on physician-owned hospitals. So the ones that were already constructed or in the process of being constructed were grandfathered in, but nobody else could build one since then. One of the big issues that came up during the initial part of the COVID crisis was that the government was asking us to expand our services within this platform for those of us who have physician-owned hospitals. I don't. But for our colleagues who have, they wanted us to expand the platform there. And a lot of times that took capital requirements to where our colleagues had to spend money to expand these buildings, which they were formerly not allowed to expand services within there. And then the big concern that we had was that, all right, after the public emergency is over, do we get to keep the, the expansions that these doctors have spent so much money putting these better improvements and, and uh bricks and mortar and other processes, operational processes in place, or are they all taken off the table because we're going to revert to the old law? So we're actively not just advocating for allowing these doctors to enable their practices to improve and to process and operate at a higher rate based on the advantages and the efficiencies that they developed during the initial part of the COVID crisis, but also to the repeal to the entire ban. If you can make a good case why you should be able to have a physician-owned hospital, you should be able to have it, and the ACA should not affect that. And actually, I want to add one more thing to um, our notes about physician-owned hospitals, because before we talked about telemedicine being a new aspect of the unified advocacy agenda, uh, repealing this ban has been on the, the agenda for AOS and part of our goals for a long time. And one of the reasons why it's on our tier one, um, and, and you noted COVID-19, is the opportunity we have to finally repeal that. And in fact, I want to give a, a quick shout out there to um, the bill by representative Representatives Michael Burgess and Vincente Gonzalez. That is the Patient Access to Higher Quality Care Act of 2021. That just got introduced. So we have an opportunity now as an association to finally repeal uh, that uh, moratorium that's been in place. Moving on to our final uh, policy area that is on our tier one issues, we have encourage physician burden relief. Uh, this is, again, broad. This is one of those areas that a lot of different facets uh, of policy could be moved under. But what kind of burdens are we referring to here? And, and how would this relief actually improve patient care? So the burdens are well known to our colleagues. They, they have to hire staff to take care of a lot of these things. We have to take care of a lot of these things, not just prior authorization, but many other things. For instance, we had a recent art, uh, letter that uh, the presidential line sent out to United Healthcare because there was actually a rule coming through United Healthcare that they actually wanted to see the images that we took, whether it's X-ray or MRI or CT scan, in order to pre-authorize certain operations. Can't make this stuff up, okay? So these are some of the things that we're going. This is a whole, as you said, a very broad issue that we're trying to attack on here. This also goes back to the primacy issue. I mean, we should be allowed to take care of our patients. We're doing the right thing. We shouldn't have these additional barriers that we have to jump over in order to make this happen. 
or non-evidence-based performance reporting mandates, right? I mean, there's there's barriers and then there are aspects of um, policy and regulation that are evidence-based. So there's so much that can fit under that topic alone, including electronic health records. We could probably spend a whole other podcast episode on that. But um, Dr. Lundy, we just covered a lot talking about even the tier one issues. And it can be overwhelming for listeners to think, you know, how can I make a difference? What role can I play in addressing these impediments to care. So how would you answer those questions or doubts uh, from your peers? And I imagine this is going to be a more frequent uh, case for you as our new Advocacy Council chair running that um, portion of our membership. There is so much to this and uh, a fair amount of our fellows have become actively engaged in the advocacy arena. And I would encourage anybody who really feels a calling to this First of all, please get a hold of your state society. You've got folks in your state society who come to the National Orthopedic Leadership Conference. There could be colleagues right there in your same town or city that'd be happy to take you in and show you the ropes on how we deal with these things. But first and foremost, I wanna really emphasize the work of the Office of Government Relations. Many people, many fellows of the AOS don't realize that we have a very large, strong, and vibrant Office of Government Relations that does an incredible job getting in front of Congress, getting in front of CMS, getting in front of the other regulatory agencies and affecting laws. And then after the laws are passed, affecting the regulations of how these laws are, are, are processed and how they actually are written into rule that directly affect us on a day in day out basis. So if you can't get involved with it, know that we're taking care of it. And there's a lot of good people doing it. If you would like to get involved, there's a lot of opportunity to do this whether it's through your state society or whether on the national level. One of the things that we often do is we send out calls to action to the fellows. And it's very important for you to call your congressman or congresswoman and at least let them know where you stand on certain things. That's a very good way to get to know your, your leaders and get more involved with there. And then lastly, we've also started the patient advocate program that if you have patients that have a very compelling story that you feel that these people will be very good to help further our cause and let them know how much good work we're doing for people, that they can also be involved and help us advocate uh, to help take care of other patients in front of Congress. And uh, two more things, Dr. Lundy, I hope that we can touch upon before we get to the end of this episode here. Um, one being that um, our orthopedic pack is a really powerful tool, an actual uh, third prong to our advocacy strategy that helps us get the access that is so critical to being a part of these conversations. Um, we've had a lot of focus on our PAC this year, given um, some of the, the political challenges that our members in the whole country have witnessed. Um, so I think it's important to make the point that our PAC is powerful. It, it is aligned with orthopedic priorities, and it is really supporting those uh, policies makers that are going to get behind our issues. Anything more you want to add on, on that topic? Well, it's funny you say that because prior to this job, I was treasurer of the PAC. So I was extensively right. involved with Brittany Starr and, and Dr. John Gill, who's chair of the PAC. The PAC does a tremendous amount of work. And it's very important to realize that we don't support the red or the blue side of the aisle. We are completely agnostic to party when it comes to that. We try to really make sure that we're supporting congressional leaders that will advocate for our positions and help us get these things done. And our PAC leadership is outstanding on this. One thing I can always assure people is that any money that's given to the PAC is used wisely. 
and it's not um, used in extremely partisan ways. So our PAC does a great job. If you'd like to know more about this, I'd encourage you to look into our PAC on our website. Absolutely. And the last point I want to make is one that you and I discussed um, offline prior to doing this interview, and that is about the opportunity that COVID presents. So many organizations right now are talking about the silver lining that um, that a worldwide pandemic and so much darkness has offered groups like, like ours. Our doctors are some frontline workers. They are the people leading the healthcare of our nation's seniors and every age in between. Uh, I think that um, I'd like actually, if you could just make a plug about why now might be a good time to be involved in shaping healthcare policy. That's a great point. If you think about it, uh, look at what was on TV, right? Where they were talking about, you know, the heroes used to be the sports stars and now there's no sports on TV. Who are the heroes? It was the healthcare workers, right? It was, it was the nurses, it was the techs, and it was us. Uh, a lot of us sustained COVID and contracted COVID and, and doing our jobs. Um, and so the country is very aware of this. Congress is very aware of this. And the regulatory agencies are as well. So to your point, now is the time because everybody is primed. They understand that we were the ones that were right in the center of the target during this entire pandemic crisis, that we really have been the ones that have helped try to get patients through this. Because one of the important things that the country realized is that the burden of musculoskeletal disease did not go away just because there was a worldwide pandemic. And in many ways, it got worse, right? Because people would still go out and get hurt and have other problems. And then we had to take care of them during this. So in light of all this, the rule makers and the legislators in the, of the country are now in a prime position for them to hear our message. And we need to strike while the opportunity is there. And I, I think that, um, a phrase we discussed that we both kind of liked, again, in a previous conversation was about how our surgeons are changing healthcare individually in, the, in their OR, in clinic, um, and that these policymakers who are now listening are uh, changing healthcare at the policy level and among the regulations that affect patients nationwide. And we said, you can't do one without the other, right? And that's, that's really where people like you and our members who wanna be a part of that bigger mission, we need them. We need you. Uh, you're critical to us getting through to these um, leaders of our country and in doing the good work that we do. Seriously, there's not one that's better than the other, right? So if I'm taking care of somebody with a femoral shaft fracture, it's one patient at a time. That's the only one that I care about. Yet we take that experience and that ability to take care of that one person and then apply it to policy and regulatory changes on the national, the state and the national level to affect better health care for everybody across the board. And it's the ability that when we do go there, we have so much credibility because we are the ones in the trenches on a day in, day out basis. Well, we're really excited to have you on as our chair. And if our members are liking what they're hearing on the show, um, or if they want to be alerted to new episodes, please subscribe to the show, leave a rating. It helps us to make sure more of our orthopedic surgeon members can find it. And uh, the bigger ask is that you get involved in advocacy, that you reach out to your team in Washington and that you become a part of our efforts. 
Um, there's no there's no area of, of our work that is too big or too small for you to engage with, and we'd love to help you. So please email dc at aaos.org, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Bone Beat from the American Association of Orthopedic Surgeons. For more information on this topic and other AAOS efforts to shape the future of musculoskeletal care, please visit aaos.org advocacy.